Hello and welcome to this first podcast in association with the Future Focus 2030 series brought to you by Insurance Post in association with the risk. Now, with these, we set a hypothesis about an insurance class and what it might look like at the end of the decade and get the market to comment on it. And today we're talking about motor and looking at the hypothesis that, among other things, has seen the government bring forward the ban on selling new petrol, diesel and hybrid cars in the UK 2030, a greater amount of highly or fully automated vehicles on the road and e-mobility and mobility as a service solutions thriving. Now, for today's podcast, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Chris Sawford, the Strategy Director at Verisk Claims, and Niall Kavanagh, the Managing Director of Verisk Island, to specifically look at the roadmap of how we might get from today to the picture outlined in the associated article and the hypothesis I've already mentioned. So welcome, Chris, and welcome, Niall. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. So if I come to you, first of all, Niall, if I, between now and the end of the decade, what challenges does the growth in automation and ADAS throw up in terms of uh, uh, the mixed car pull on the road and, and public understanding of whether they're in control or not of a vehicle? Um, I suppose it's an interesting question. Uh, we're seeing, I suppose, at the moment that these ADAS features are being put into new cars. Certain type of cars have them. Uh, there are certain benefits that are being seen on the road from road safety perspective. But the adoption rate uh, in 10 years time, it's difficult to tell. I looked at figures recently and I think 37% of the fleet in Ireland today were manufactured over 10 years ago. So I expect in 2030, we're probably gonna see a fleet that have a mixture of both. Um, A lot of cars that will still not have the features. Uh, In an ideal world, with every car having them, I could see huge uh, safety improvements, but in that in-between phase, we're going to see new type of challenges coming up. Um, And that might prove interesting for people on the road and for insurers as well. Uh, You're already seeing the case uh, for Tesla, their autopilot, where people are handing over total control of the car and actually falling asleep at the wheel. Uh, You've seen some video evidence of this. so the manufacturers are, are, are obviously pushing this new technology, but are probably quite worried about the over-reliance on it and what impact it may have on the road. Um, there's other aspects as well uh, in relation to what these features actually mean. I think everybody felt that the lane departure warnings would actually uh, improve road safety, but from our own internal analysis, we're seeing that that's probably not the case. Um, it, it, accidents are probably not reducing in frequency, people are who have the feature are in some cases overreacting uh, and swerving into another lane. Um, we're also seeing that the actual claim costs for those vehicles are increasing as well, uh, because I suppose the sensors that are built into those vehicles uh, are more expensive for replacing parts and for recalibrating. So it's a very mixed bag. I think it will help with road safety, but the interim where we're going to have this mixture of, of a fleet uh, may prove more challenging in the shorter term. Chris? Yeah, I, I think Niall's position now on the mixed fleet is really interesting. Um, you can see a world in which there are differences in the kind of algorithmic responses that uh, that these ADAS cars might have in, a, in an automated state um, to uh, one particular road base, road user base, and another. Um, I think 
some of the things that, that concern me about where this moves on to is, is how you're going to be able to account for those differing um, sort of levels of automation within a particular fleet of cars on the road and whether that actually might present infrastructure challenges. Uh, you might find yourself, for example, in a completely segregated environment for an, uh, an automated vehicle or an enabled vehicle. Uh, whereas actually, if you're a, if you're not using that kind of automation, you're having to you know roll on a secondary stock almost. Can I ask, uh, Chris, in terms of the growth of IoT, something else that is mentioned in the hypothesis, how do you see that impacting uh, motor insurance? I, I think it's going to make, make everything a lot more immediate. Um, Jonathan, um, you can see real-time risk and planning uh, making its way into uh, into SatNav, uh, looking at hotspots on the road, places to avoid, um, just from a risk perspective. And you can see that linking in real time to, to premium calculation. So I think IoT from that perspective in terms of uh, an interface with the customer from the insurer is going to become really, really important. Um, I think we could be in danger of overstating the benefits as well. There are some aspects to, uh, um, to IoT which ought to enable us to get to a place of you know, immediate notification of incident, um, perhaps um, arbitration of fault where you could take sensors from uh, the vehicle, but also from uh, from the road networks to determine fault, perhaps, but also uh, around fraud identification, diagnosis of damage and cost applications. The, the thing that excites me about that is that you could make a very streamlined automated process. Um, but of course, there are many things that, uh, that IoT is still not going to be able to uh, determine. Um, you know, I'll give you an example, pre-existing medical conditions, might it might not form part of the data set that sits behind that. And so, people's understanding of, of how far they can push the technology to benefit from IoT is going to develop as the availability of data develops. I think one of the key things on the IoT piece is and perhaps more so than, uh, than just as a result of pure uh, sort of ADAS or autonomy improvements is going to be the reduction in accident frequency. And I think that, that ability there to, to um, really communicate lifetime on roads and provide warnings uh, interacting between vehicles is going to be really, really important. So relying less on the the sort of the vehicle as an island progressing down the motorway uh, and viewing it more as a connected network of vehicles trying to progress down through the motorway, I think is going to be the biggest determining factor as, as to uh, frequency reduction. Niall, what are your views on IoT and motor? Um, <clears throat> I suppose the interesting aspect of this for me is who does it benefit? Is it the driver or the insurer or both? Uh, I can see uh, motor insurers definitely can see the benefit. Uh, I think driver behavior tells more about the risk than any of the other proxies that they will use in relation to a person's age, uh, where they live or, or their driving history and things like that. So the insurer wants to know this. Um, some people maybe maybe of an older generation are still unwilling to to share that data. Uh, younger people have been ha quite happy to share through telematic programs where they can get cheaper insurance. Um, I do think that we will see every vehicle being pre-installed with something like this, uh, if not already, but in the very short term. Uh, manufacturers are very interested in, in getting into this space and, and being able to capture the data and be and use it for assessing the risk of current models and how they may build cars in the future. Uh, who owns that data is an interesting question. Will the, the manufacturer own it and look to, in theory, maybe license it to the motor insurer? Uh, will the car owner, you know, 
put up a fight against that and, and potentially there might be data uh, uh, protection uh, restrictions which may not allow the, the manufacturer to, to own that data without permission or consent. So will the car owner own that data and then elect to share it with their insurer if they feel they are a good driver uh, in, in the hopes of getting cheaper car insurance? So uh, a very interesting uh, phase because I think um, people now accept it. it. It, as I said, it's becoming standard. Um, but ultimately, the ownership will then determine maybe the value of what it will deliver for for all parties concerned. Can I ask Niall, obviously, looking at 2030, that there'll have to be a number of infrastructure changes to prepare for, 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 for the new world that, that, that we've laid out in this hypothesis. How do you see that those changes happening? What needs to be done to get, you know, us ready for, for, for the, the new world as outlined? Um, I think the, the easiest one is maybe to look at electrical vehicles. Uh, you know, there has been a lot written about um, the increase in demand and increased uh, level that manufacturers are now building electrical options of, of different models. So uh, that then requires a different infrastructure and in how they are, are powered. Um, I know from speaking from a perspective here in Ireland, there, there, there isn't the, the number of PowerPoints spread across the country to maybe encourage people who have to take longer trips. So it maybe it's it's more for people in urban areas that they can take short trips and, and charge from home or in places they know. So I think that's going to change. You may see a new type of petrol station pop up that will allow for people to charge their car and sit and have a coffee or, you know, browse or buy books while they're waiting for the car to charge. I also think from the autonomous vehicle discussion, you're probably going to see that more in public transport because they have fixed routes. Uh, maybe it's a bit easier to predict uh, and, and plan for those. So you may see, and I think touching on Chris's point, you may see the road structure changing somewhat to allow for autonomous vehicles in certain lanes. You may also see, if as people find more trust in these vehicles, that there is less risk of human error and that Additional junctions may be allowed onto motorways. Uh, there are restrictions in place for those at the moment. So I think you can see in the future, maybe not in the immediate future, uh, allowing for more uh, connection into those um, uh, junctions from, from nearer towns uh, and to allow people uh, to get on and off um, subject to them driving you know, cars with these safety features built in. Chris? Yeah, uh, another interesting one, and I, I think I might be in danger, Jonathan, of, uh, of, <laughs> of perhaps travelling into 2130 rather than 2030. But um, part of part of me wants to think that this could be the end of traffic jams in cities. It could be the end of any kind of uh, any kind of multi-storey parking lot, <laughs> um, just because it'll be so much easier for cars to operate as, as fleets uh, uh, and and not have to sit around idling in a car park um, because of the different nature of how you might consume car travel in the future, especially when autonomous. Um, I think one of the things that, that does challenge us is, is looking at the priorities that the government's going to have um, and vehicle manufacturers. When you have, um, you know, uh, the government saying you've got to have your or there's going to be no new sales of, um, of diesel vehicles and everything ought to be electric by such such a date and you realize the amount of work that has to go into making sure the infrastructure in the uk can support that kind of change it makes me question how long it's going to take to really make meaningful infrastructure changes to get the kind 
kind of really automated inner city roadway uh, that we think autonomy can bring. Uh, I think that's going to be a, a big challenge. Um, and I think that whole idea still of that mixed fleet in the interim is quite problematic. Uh, the, the number of behavioural changes that we simply don't know uh, how they might arise, how they might change as a result of autonomous vehicles being on the road in that mixed base um, makes me think that perhaps it's a, it's a longer time scale than we're really anticipating at the moment. Can I ask, um, Chris, obviously, and this has already been mentioned, um, but how do you see that the data ownership debate rumbling on, particularly in relation to drivers, insurers and the, the OEMs? Yeah, uh, it's yeah, really uh, Pretty t- a difficult one to answer. Um, I, I'm minded of the GDPR changes actually, and the power balance that that was meant to restore back to the consumer. Um, and the fact that you log on to a website now and you just you know you get your pop up and you just go yeah no that's absolutely fine I'm just going to accept all of that. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if in some way you saw first of all a minimum acceptable level of data transfer that is everybody's kind of base level opt-in, um, and that there's an agreement to share that kind of data across the industry. The real richness in the data, the depth of data, I think is, is something that people are going to want to try and commercialise, but that you could actually see consumers trying to take control of, you know, third-party data cooperatives, for example, um, managing that transmission of data between the revenue provider and the, and the user of that information and the contributor uh, to that data source. Um, the other piece there is around fleet owners, isn't it? If we think that the footprint of who's actually owning vehicles and how people are consuming that vehicle travel in the future is going to change to a to a more fleet-orientated uh, setup, a rideshare kind of setup, um, it begs the question as to whether or not it's going to be very similar to entering into a um, entering into a website when you enter into the car. You know, you accept the uh, provider's use uh, the terms and conditions, and and you go about your journey. Um, so it's definitely going to change um, whether or not. The manufacturers and the insurers, uh, and, the, and maybe perhaps the government needs to legislate on it, but whether or not there can be an agreement as to the level of data and the point in time in which that data is shared, um, I think there's scope for that. Um, I don't think it's going to be the rich kind of data ownership that people are expecting. I think that's likely to devolve uh, to other organisations and individuals, perhaps. Niall? Yeah, I spoke, I suppose, uh, on a some aspects of this earlier, but um, I think in the past, the ownership of the data, it's always been accepted that the insurer had it. You know, they, they provided a device that was installed in your car from telematics or, you know, an app that they develop and, and, and the policyholder installs. So they have, in, in theory, so it's been the owner of the data. And I think to some level, they expect that to continue. I think the fact that the manufacturers are now pre-installing it and see a potential opportunity for them to commercialize the data and to benefit from R&D and, and internal analysis of the data probably puts them in a, in conflict. And then, you know, us, the, 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 the data subjects or, or, or the owners of the cars might, might have a different view, especially with all of us having a lot more knowledge about GDPR and our rights that who do you want to consent to giving ownership to this data? There's an interesting model in the US, which is a bit different to our own. Uh, you know, telematics, as I said, has been owned by the insurers. The manufacturers started collecting the data, but what they do is they share it uh, through a central hub, and then the owner of the vehicle can then elect to share it with the insurers. Uh, so they are given control of it, but third parties like Verisk and others will effectively facilitate that. 
So I think that's where it will end up. You know, the 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 method for sharing the data and and and, and how it's being used uh, will be done by uh, a mixture of of uh, technology companies, uh, manufacturers, uh, and insurers working together, and ultimately the owner being the, the the car owner will determine who gets to get get the data and what they can use it for. So now, can I ask, I mean, how do you think the evolution of technology from automation to advanced sat-navs that identify the safest route from A to B is going to impact personal injury claims? Uh, we're seeing the benefits of this already. Uh, I, I just, in advance of this call, I was just looking back at some of the, the other um, features in the past. I think seatbelts were first introduced as an optional extra in 1949. Uh, and didn't become mandatory until 1966 or thereabouts. So there was a fair amount of time, um, even though I'm sure the benefits were very, very apparent from very, very early on of, of, of how they could reduce uh, serious injury and death in, in car accidents. So today we're seeing some of the features. So the, the frontal collision um, uh, AOS feature that, that a number of manufacturers have put in place has seen a significant uh, improvements because the car is either able to stop before the collision or has slowed down to such a rate that the collision uh, means that the injuries are much less. So, you know, it is not difficult to see that in a few years' time that that type of technology could be mandatory in, in for every manufacturer to put into a car. Um, there, you know, I think there's so many of them at the moment and manufacturers are calling them so many different things. It's hard to get a, a, a true sense of, of the value of some of them. But uh, that one particular feature ha has been hugely beneficial. Um, the other thing is, you know, ADAS features are primarily designed to remove human error, uh, which is still, always has been and still is the biggest cause of motor accidents. Um, so, you know, with ADAS features taking away or removing the risk of human error, I think, uh, you know, to me, it's sort of a no-brainer that we are going to see uh, both severity and frequency of injury claims reduce, which benefits everybody. Chris? Yeah, uh, I agree with Niall. Um, I think the potential for accident frequency reduction is absolutely there. Um, there's a question mark in my head as to whether or not um, the, you know, some more catastrophic outcomes are, are going to be uh, coming through in the data. Um, one of the things that's been interesting about the uh, about the, the pandemic, you know, the, the coronavirus, and the impact that's had social distancing and on in terms of um, vehicle usage, obviously it's dropped massively. Um, but then you see in the telematics data really uh, quite interesting differences in driver behaviour on empty roads. So I don't have to spell it out for for you, but you. You can imagine what people uh, what people do when they've got an empty highway in front of them. Um, so, are you going to see something similar if the uh, if the congestion of the roads decreases um, and you've still got a mixed road base? Do you see um, accident severity increasing as frequency drops? It's a potential for sure. I think some of the other things that are really interesting in that is, um, you know, that automating a route based on a, based on a, you know known risk areas, for example. Um, can only be a good thing, but at what point then um, do you draw the line between uh, who's taking control of that as which part of the technology or the driver and whether or not that was the right or wrong call? Uh, I think it's probably too far too far down the chain, <laughs> um, but you 
can certainly see areas in which um, litigation disputes are going to arise as people disagree with the decisions that the technology is taking, especially in relation to route planning, for example. Uh, and, and I guess to varying degrees of automation around that route planning. So Chris, you, you already, you've already touched on this, and this is again a subject that comes up quite, quite a bit when we talk about the future motor, and that is its vehicle um, usage and ownership. And do, do you think this is likely to change and what could be the catalyst for change? I mean, coronavirus has been mentioned as one potential and, you know, when people see they don't have to use their vehicles as much as they might previously have thought. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the cost of this actually is probably the biggest catalyst, uh, Jonathan. Um, uh, it's been widely reported. The vehicles that are currently being made are a lot more expensive than they used to be. Repairing them is very, very expensive. And a lot of that is due to the, the ADAS and, uh, and the automation technology that's being put into the vehicles now, um, requiring specialised tools. So the supply chain, the repair chain, that's all changing, um, becoming more specialised to particular manufacturers and that kind of stuff. Um, I think it has to reach a point where that technology is either um, so readily available and uh, and and so um, and so cheap, for want of a better phrase, that actually ownership can move back to the individual. Prior to that, I think you're going to see more rideshare activity. Um, that coupled with hand in hand on the autonomy stuff, it makes sense, doesn't it? That you you know you download an app and you call a car and it, and it comes to you. Get the car you want. Um, works out perfectly. Why why have the overhead? Um, it does raise some other interesting questions around, you know, if you don't actually own the vehicles and you are involved in incidents on the road that, that weren't your fault, what does that model look like and, and who's, the, who's the customer in that sense? I think it presents some challenging questions for insurers as to how they're going to deal with a different type of customer and a different type of liability when, uh, when, when that does change. Niall? Yeah, I suppose I'll have I'd have my own my own bias on this being uh, from Generation X, where we feel we need to own our own house and own our own car. Um, there has been a shift noticeable in the last number of years, where younger generations are are actually more comfortable with just using uh, things as they need them, rather than feeling they need to own them. Um, and I think that's that that we're going to see that more and more in the motor market. Uh, we're already seeing options, uh, like, like Chris mentioned, in relation to um, uh, you know people sharing their cars, but also you can rent a car that includes the insurance as well for you know a few hours a day, weekend, uh, and those seem to become more and more popular, uh, especially when beyond the actual cost of the car. Uh, increasing uh, with, with the amount of features and, and, and technology that's in them. The cost of insurance has been increasing, uh, maybe more so in Ireland than in the UK, but at a considerable rate over the last few years, mainly driven by claim costs. And that is obviously uh, putting the balance of, do I need to own a car or do I want to own a car? Um, maybe putting it uh, lower on your wish list. I've also noticed on my own road here, um, from talking on WhatsApp with, with the neighbours uh, that, you know, one of the cars is a flat tyre, another one's got a flat battery because they've been sitting there for a number of weeks. People just aren't using them. And, you know, maybe people are realising that they are not a, an essential part of your life. So I think uh, well, we, are, we know at the moment that new car and used car sales are near zero uh, because people can't go out and look at them. But coming out of this, 
will people say, well, actually, do I need to change my car or do we, can we do, live with just one car in the family rather than everybody needing a car? So I, I think we are going to see in the, in, in the next couple of years uh, maybe a significant move away from what we have traditionally seen in the market. Well, Niall and Chris, thank you very much for your insight and thoughts. This is obviously a very interesting journey as we head to 2030. Thank you very much. Thank you. As I said at the start, this is part of an ongoing series brought to you by Insurance Post and Veris called Future Focus 2030. Look out for future articles and future podcasts. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>